Dr. Meredith Trump on the Herbal Hour podcast to talk about homeopathy. Let's get right into it. All right. How did you get into this uh, into this path and how did you get interested in homeopathy? Yeah, so I actually grew up in kind of um, like an unconventional household. So my mom's been a massage therapist for about 35 years and I just grew up not really going to a conventional doctor. Um, so I saw a lot of like Chinese medicine practitioners, chiropractors, um, homeopaths, just kind of like everyone except the MD. Um, so I felt like that was kind of where I came from in terms of going to school. And then throughout school at NUNM, I kind of um, just realized that I, I've always had this split between the art and the medicine. So I've always been like science brained, but also artistic. Um, before coming to school, I actually worked as a photographer. So I felt like homeopathy is the blend of both. It has this, um, you know, basis in science, but there is a large art part to the medicine. Mm. So I feel like it really resonated with me because it allows me to use both sides of my brain. Um, And I love the art side of just naturopathic medicine in general. So all of the tools that we use that are kind of more on that spectrum, I've tended to resonate towards. Mm-hmm. So what is homeopathy for people who might have, you know, heard it or they, you know, they see the homeopathic supplements in their health food store. What right. is it actually? Is it a philosophy? Is it a form of medication? I mean, I think it has a lot of different definitions. Um, I have trained under a lot of different styles of homeopathy. So I've definitely created kind of my own, um, philosophy that I follow, but really it's using, um, dilute substances. So it could be plants, minerals, animals, metals to help your body achieve homeostasis. And sometimes those substances are so dilute that it's just the fingerprint of the substance or the energetic of the substance, but it's really about using the substance that matches with that person, how they're presenting, what their symptoms are to bring about a state of balance. Um, So oftentimes you'll hear that theory of light cures like, Mm -hmm. and you're looking for a substance that when you take that actual substance, you will often experience these symptoms and those symptoms actually match the symptoms that the patient is experiencing. So you, you know, sometimes it's uh, hard to wrap your brain around because it's a little bit of a different way of thinking than our conventional minds. But it's just about bringing a state of harmony to the body and allowing your body to heal from within. Hmm. What are some other uh, key ideas to understanding homeopathy? So there's the idea of like treats like, which it gets its name from. Um, But what are some other key things to understand in using homeopathics for yourself or for other people? I think that, um, you know, homeopathy can be used for a variety of reasons. So Sometimes you'll hear the um, theory or phrase constitutional homeopathy, and that's one way you can use homeopathy in terms of treating who is this person as a person. So what is kind of their core personality, their traits, their preferences, um, and just supporting their overall being with who they are using different medicines to just improve their overall person. Um, You also can use homeopathy for acute situations. So if you get a bee sting, um, you can use it. But I think there's just a lot of different applications for homeopathy. 
And it depends kind of where is that person in their journey of healing? Um, and then also how do you kind of work as a physician or, you know, an at-home doctor, maybe you have kids and you want to use homeopathy, but just kind of how are you going to use the tool? There's a lot of different ways that you can apply homeopathy. Mm-hmm. You bring up the point of uh, constitutional homeopathy or constitutional prescribing. Mm-hmm. What are your views on um, what that is, how that's applied versus more keynote usage of homeopathy where you kind of look at, oh, they have this, that, this uh, constellation of symptoms. So this homeopathic is indicated. Whereas my understanding of constitutional is it, it doesn't um, look that much at the direct symptoms that are happening now, but more like the pattern of the person's life and their general constitutional health. Right. Yeah. I think that there's a time and a place for constitutional prescribing. I think at the start of homeopathy, Um, people were just a little bit more pure to their constitutional remedy. Um, We just live in a very different world now. So I think that oftentimes our constitution is obscured by our experiences. So if you just think about like day-to-day life, we all have tons of stress, um, environmental exposures, more emotional trauma. And I think that all of those pieces can really obscure the constitution of the person. I think some people are more pure to who they have been or kids are a great example. Like kids are almost always their constitutional remedy because they have not had all that life burden. So I think time and a place for constitutional prescribing, but in today's world, it's a little bit more challenging to see the pure constitution of the person. Mm. So you can see, um, you know, glimpses of a constitution. Some people like the sun, some people like cloudy weather, um, people that like salty versus sweet. You know, we all have these like innate preferences. Those are aspects of our constitution. But as people really age um, or they just have, you know, stress or trauma or life events, I think the constitution can be harder to find within people. So- Mm. Sometimes I'll ask my patients um, who, like, what were they like as a child? And that will often give you a little bit more insight into their constitutional remedy. So I really think of homeopathy as an onion, where the constitution is the inside of the onion, but we have all these additional layers to who we are. So as you use homeopathy, you can peel back those layers and find kind of that center constitution of a person. That's a key way that I think a lot of the more holistic methods of medicine differs from the more conventional model is that idea of uh, treating that person in front of you, not the disease that they happen to have this day. And it always fascinates me that people have certain kind of uh, weaknesses in terms of how they usually get sick and it manifests differently. So you get 10 people together. um, They're all stressed out, but you know, one person gets skin breakouts. The other just gets upper respiratory infections or throats. The other gets depressed and you know, so on and so forth. So the same kind of uh, stress gets put on them, but they all respond with their own unique um, disease process. I guess. Which I think is one of the pieces that's so powerful about homeopathy is you, it's all about the individual. So there are different medicines that have like more affinity for the lungs. So 
if you're the person that always gets the chest cold, then you're kind of looking at a different set of medicines that might fit this person. Um, because you're right, you know, stress, we all have, right now is a great example, right? We're all living in this crazy, uncertain, stressful time, but everybody um, deals with it and kind of filters that stress differently. And if you're having a presentation of symptoms, that's very different from each person to person. So that's part of why homeopathy is so powerful is that you're always looking at the individual. So it's never really about, oh, you have asthma, take this medicine. It's what's your trigger? How does it present? You know, who are you as a person? Things like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was speaking to a naturopathic doctor and I was asking them, uh, how does someone kind of focus in on mental health, treating mental health? And what he said was homeopathy is probably the number one way to, to go about that path. Um, what, what do you think about that? Why, why does homeopathy have such a uh, seeming affinity towards mental health um, issues? Or it's at least used in that sense, typically. I mean, I think it's hard to address the psyche for people. So there's a pretty limited toolbox um, for how to support mental health. I actually do a lot of mental health management in practice, um, and I probably 75% of the time also use homeopathy, but you're pretty limited. It's like counseling of some sort, right? CBT or DBT, whatever style of counseling. And from a conventional perspective, antidepressants or anxiolytics. So, you know, that's pretty limiting. Even from a naturopathic perspective, we often treat mental health um, from a Band-Aid point of view. So it's like, you have anxiety, we'll give you something to calm you down. Homeopathy addresses really why do you have the anxiety or how is that anxiety presenting for you as the individual? So I feel like it's powerful because it goes to the psyche level, which is a little bit, there's not many tools that do that. So balancing, you know, the physical, mental, emotional health is very achievable, achievable with homeopathy. Hmm. So there's a lot of theories of how homeopathy works. Um, what's your take on it? Do you think that there's some kind of energetic component to it? Is that why it has such an influence on the mind? Or is there something else mysterious that we just don't understand with it? Probably both. Um, you know, I, we don't understand how it works, but I believe that it, you know, we're all vibration. Everything is a vibration. And so I think the energetics of different substances help balance just kind of your internal vibratory state. So if you find the right medicine for people, it will balance all of the aspects of them. So it will support the physical symptoms they experience, also the mental, emotional symptoms. So I think it's, it's definitely on the energetic plane because um, we know it's not on the material plane, so to speak. Um, and there's, you know, that is kind of the mystery, right? Is how, how does the energetic plane work? Mm -hmm. um, so I think it's both. We know it's not a material substance, so it must be an energetic substance. Mm. What remedies do you find yourself using very often, like for yourself and other patients? Um, you've probably heard of the term polycrest. So that's just like your common remedies. Mm -hmm. um, I use a lot of polycrest remedies because those are more constitutional style remedies. Mm -hmm. So they fit 
a lot of personalities, a lot of different people, they tend to address a lot of common symptoms. So I'll use a lot of those polycrest remedies. Mm-hmm. Um, I also do a lot of acute style prescribing. So if you get a bee sting using apis, if you sprain your ankle using arnica. Um, so yeah, I feel like polycrest for the most part, but if you, whenever I have a patient that I'm just struggling with, or I'm just, I'm not seeing anything shift in them. I feel like you have to go a little bit deeper, look at some of those remedies that are not as commonly used um, and just see kind of, is there something you're missing about the case that would bring a different remedy to the surface for you? So it kind of goes back to that onion idea where if you're getting some good, if you're choosing good medicines or good remedies, you will see some shifts in the person and then you will have new things present to treat. So over time, you should be kind of changing up your remedies, um, seeing positive changes in all aspects of the person. And then you can kind of go from there. Where do you prescribe? Yeah, that, that makes sense. I mean, as we go through life, we certainly change a lot. And sometimes I wonder if constitutions can also change due to um, lifestyle factors or maybe even like a big mentality shift. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think, or big um, shocks to the system, I think mm-hmm. can shift people's uh, constitution. So I've seen some patients where um, they go through like a big grief and that, or heartbreak is a great one. You know, heartbreak people, they'll feel it in their gut, right? And then they will have like digestive issues since they had this heartbreak. So I feel like these big losses or these big shocks can really shift kind of that internal landscape for people. Mm. Yeah. uh, Traumas of any sort, I'm I'm sure too, kind of. Um, change all the different symptom presentations. Um, What are some really like standout stories of when you used homeopathy, Uh, either for yourself or for a patient that really made you go, wow, okay, this is why I do this. Right. Because obviously Um, there's so much uh, opinion about, you know, homeopathy is this, it's that. Yep. So I trained a lot under Dr. Bader. I did three years of residency at NUNM. And she um, gave me this pearl in terms of using Arnica. So when we think about Arnica as a homeopathic, we often think, oh, you sprain your ankle, it gets bruised, you don't want people to touch it. But she actually showed me that you can use homeopathy for people, or Arnica, for people that have um, that style of presentation on the emotional plane. Hmm. So I had a couple of patients who have fibromyalgia, and they tend to have a lot of pain, right? It's kind of that like dull, achy, they don't want to be touched pain. They often have some sort of trauma, usually emotional trauma, um, which incites the fibro symptoms. And they're pretty closed off. They don't really let people in. Sometimes they're um, closed off even from their loved ones, like their spouse or their children. So I've started using a lot of Arnica with my fibro patients, and I have had excellent success. Fibro is difficult because there's not a lot of conventional interventions. And I've had more than a handful of patients, their pain levels reduced by like 75 to 80%. So it's really addressing the emotional plane, which has resulted in physical symptoms, but then the physical symptoms resolve. So that's probably 
Um, that's a huge success I've had in terms of treating the mental emotional that is actually manifesting as physical. Mm. I've also used a lot of homeopathy in children, um, which is interesting because children don't know about placebo, right? That's not actually a concept to to them and had significant results. Mm. Yeah, that that's, um, that's fascinating, kind of opening up the view of homeopathy to not just, you know, this is for that, but also viewing it in uh, almost metaphorical sense, like with the bruising, what's like the bruising of the emotions that can right. be treated with it. That's yeah, and that's, I think that's where the art comes in is really looking at what is kind of the essence of these remedies or the medicines and how does that apply to a whole person? So as opposed to just saying, oh, this is really an acute remedy, you use it for this, that will always kind of be transcribed on a mental emotional plane, but you really have to understand what's the essence of the remedy and how it presents to see it from all these different angles. Hmm. What originally drew you to homeopathy specifically? I just grew up being exposed to it. We used it a lot as a form of medicine and I saw it work. So I felt like I did not have to get over the um, idea of like, does this even work? Because I knew it worked. And again, I just love the art aspect of homeopathy. Um, I love just kind of diving in and really understanding the different remedies and kind of where they come from and how they present in all these different ways for different people. So I find it to be a fascinating tool that we have. Um, and it's so powerful. It's also very inexpensive. So it's accessible to a lot of people. Um, it's easy to take, like my kids love it. So that's an easy thing. And it's just, again, it's such a powerful tool that I'm always like, why would you not use homeopathy if, you know, it's available? Mm-hmm. What kind of uh, dosing do you like to do? There's so much uh, yeah, a lot debate of controversy. about that. Yeah, a lot of controversy <laughs> about how you dose it. Yeah, I'm, uh, I guess I'm a little renegade with my homeopathy. I'll give like multiple remedies at once and I'll kind of um, mix up my dosing or potency. So I do follow the idea that those higher potencies like 200 C, those really address more of that mental emotional plane. Whereas those low potencies, 60, 90, that's more the physical plane. So I'd say that's probably the one rule I follow. Um, I think 30 C is kind of the transition where it can address both physical, but also mental emotional. And then I always take into account the vitality of a person. So again, kids, they're super vital. They, you know, they heal so quickly. They just bounce back really quickly. They tend to be able to tolerate those higher potencies. If you have an adult, maybe they're an older adult or they've had a lot of trauma and they're just kind of that weak constitution, I tend to be a little bit more cautious. Um, I might start at maybe a 12C and repeat it and then kind of bump up if the person tolerates it. Mm. So I'm a little... Uh, I don't really follow one doctrine with how to prescribe. Um, It's a lot of different aspects that come in. It's kind of like, how are you evaluating where your patient's at? Mm -hmm. 
So do you use homeopathics along with uh, pharmaceuticals and other treatments, or do you like to kind of separate them off when you use homeopathics? I use it with everything. So I pretty, even if I'm prescribing like an SSRI for depression, I'll probably also give a remedy to somebody. Um, I feel like it's rare that people want just one thing. Um, so I usually give a pretty well-rounded treatment plan, but again, probably 75 to 80% of the time I'm giving either homeopathy, um, undas, which is drainage or herbs. So some energetic medicine on top of what else I'm doing. Mm. I think that, um, homeopathy makes everything else work better. So even if you're giving, you know, a drug, it will help the drug be beneficial or you're giving a supplement, it will provide benefit to the supplement. Mm. How do you choose which homeopathic to give? That's another widely debated question. Right. (laughs) I, that's like the hardest step, right? Is how do you figure out what to even give? Like, what are your remedy choices? Mm. I have studied a lot. I joke that I used to go to bed reading Materia Medica. So I would like read a couple of remedies in Morrison's desktop guide before bed. It's just kind of like easy, fun reading. Um, So I felt like I've put a lot of time to actually understand the different remedies because that you need to have some basic understanding to even know what options you might have for a person. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I also really listen to my intuition. So sometimes I'll be in a room with a patient and I'll be like, they sound like nap mirror. And then when I step out, I will read about nap mirror and see, you know, was this, does this seem like a good fit or are there parts of it that fit, but other parts don't. Um, So it's kind of a balance of that science piece, right? Like essentially memorization or just like knowledge with the art of listening to whatever input you're receiving, um, and kind of following where that takes you. Hmm. Do you think of, uh, homeopathy in terms of the other, um, kind of foundational ideas when it was originated, like the idea of like miasms or, uh, different, like, um, like animal, insect, snake remedies, Mm -hmm. those kind of ways of thinking, do you use those? Um, kind of frameworks and choosing? Sometimes I've moved a little bit more into looking at miasms more from a state of um, like, where's the person's overall health? So again, I'll talk about kids. Kids, they tend to get sick and then bounce back. So that is a healthier miasm. Um, They're, you, you know, most kids are usually pretty healthy. And again, they'll get sick and then they'll spike this huge fever and then they're totally fine. The other end of the spectrum with miasms are people that are just like chronically ill. They almost never have a state of health. Um, It's just kind of like you look at their diagnosis list and it's huge. It's just like all these really complex diseases. So I've been kind of incorporating miasms from that standpoint, just looking at where is this person's health on the spectrum of, you know, ability to recover. Um, because as pathology deepens, you're moving into a deeper miasmatic state. And, you know, there's some different remedies that would be considered in those different states. Mm. What's your understanding of miasms in general? Like what, what are they? Um, it's kind of, I think of it as 
so generational. So oftentimes miasms are kind of passed down. So if you look at, um, you know, grandparents, parents, like what is that family history look like? That can definitely tell you some of the miasmatic uh, characteristics. And then again, I think of miasms as the ability to return to health. So if you have a healthy miasm, you bounce back. If you have more of like a pathological miasm, you tend to just never really return to your baseline of health. Um, But I think that people, you know, through the generational aspects of miasms, you can be born into like a deeper miasmatic state. So you might be born as that kid that has like recurrent ear infections, tons of allergies, tons of asthma, just like never a super healthy kid. That's a very different miasm than the kid that has never had an ear infection, you know, gets a cold once a year and bounces back in two days. Mm. So I think it's, there's homeopathy, there's like all of these different factors that you take into account. Um, Miasms, I feel like is it's like a deeper level than the constitution of a person, if that makes mm. sense. Kind of like a, like a disease pattern or like a health pattern that exists. Can they be like transmitted between people or? I don't know if transmitted between people, but I think passed down through the generations. Mm. So I think of a good example would be if a mother experiences a lot of trauma in utero, that child may be born in a different miasmatic state, Mm. which scientifically we know is true, right? Trauma interferes with epigenetics or changes your epigenetics. So we actually know through science, you can have genetic changes from traumatic events. And we actually know the grandmother, right? Can change the epigenetics of the grandchild. So I think that we can apply those same ideas to that miasmatic state of a person. Mm. So we were um, mentioning in the uh, preparation for this conversation, uh, low dose herbalism versus uh, homeopathy. What's your uh, view on the difference? Cause that's something that always um, that's where my mind goes to, because I'm more of a, herbalist focus. Mm. And I kind of think of um, homeopathy, even as like low dose herbs. And I wonder why use a homeopathic versus just the herb that the homeopathic is derived from, right? Because a lot of homeopathics are derived from herbs. I think you can use either. It's I think you follow the same philosophy, right? It's this low dose energetic influence. So if you think about taking five drops of herbs and how that's diluted in your total body system, that's a homeopathic dilution. So if you were to try to detect material, you're not going to find it. So I think you, it's just a different tool um, that you're using for the same outcome. So I love using low dose herbs. I feel like that's, um, you know, especially if you're formulating really for the individual, you can create this like multifaceted um, patient specific herbal formula that you can deliver in a homeopathic mechanism. Mm. So little bit of a different philosophy, but I think it's, if you're looking at dilution and homeopathic, um, tool, low dose herbs, it's almost interchangeable to me. So Mm. I'm, again, I'm a little bit of a renegade with homeopathy, but I love using either 
the actual homeopathic remedies or low dose herbs that I'm formulating for a person. Mm. So I don't think you need to take quantity of something to influence the body. You need to send a message. So it's sending a message with a different form of delivery. Mm. So I know you, uh, you studied along with uh, Dr. Kalanins, who's a naturopathic physician. Um, and whenever I think of homeopathy, I think about when he taught us about hormesis. Right. Or this idea that, you know, a substance at different doses will actually have different effects and how that's been demonstrated through a good amount of research yeah. on pharmaceuticals even, where you give a small dose of it, it does this. Give a really high dose, it does something completely different. Right. Yeah, I mean, low-dose naltrexone would be a great pharmaceutical to think about. Um, so giving in those micro doses, different mechanism. Mm. So homeopathy, you're essentially kind of, I always think you're at the zero and on the other end of the spectrum that we don't really study. So we, it's again, that energetic plane where it's not a material effect, it's an energetic effect. And unfortunately, we just don't really study that other end of the spectrum in science. So mm. I think we'll get there because I think, um, you know, people are waking up that there are other options and people are getting a little bit tired of the conventional model. So I think that there will be some focus on kind of this other aspect of medicine. Mm. What are some other modalities that you really like to use in your practice that you find yourself uh, going to often? I use a lot of um, biotherapeutic drainage or UNDAs, and that also is very similar to homeopathic style prescribing. Um, they're all very dilute. Some are within substance, so there is detectable, but some are um, undetectable essentially, so more that energetic plane. With biotherapeutic drainage, you're really addressing different organs of elimination and just supporting the overall body's function, essentially on a cellular level. So I love actually pairing homeopathic remedies with drainage because I think that the drainage helps the remedies to work better. Mm. Yeah, that that makes sense. I So I've seen some of the undas and as you said, they're not that dilute. They're what, like 5C, 6C sometimes? Usually X, um, 12X, 6X, yeah. So, so usually mm -hmm. within, there is some substance. Mm -hmm. So what resource do you use for uh, figuring out which UNDA to give? Because that's, uh, in clinic, that's one area that I've had some trouble with where it's like, oh, an UNDA might be nice here, but how do we find out you know, what to give? So Soroyal, who is the distributor of Undas, they actually have a good resource um, which lists out all the different numbers of the Undas, but also what they contain. And as a beginner, that's really what I started with because I came from this Western herbalism perspective from uh, our academic curriculum, but I could use that knowledge and say, oh, this Unda has valerian in it. And I know Valerian to do X, Y, and Z, which is also what this number is going to do. Mm. So I used kind of this reference tool to transition my Western knowledge into how to use drainage. Um, but I've also done like Dr. Tom usually does a great webinar. Um, I'm a resource junkie. So I just find all these resources and kind of compile them and figure out how to use them.
But if I had one resource guide, it would definitely be the Soroyal. You can find it online. It just tells you what's actually in the UNDA number. And then you can apply the knowledge that you have of how to use it. Mm. I guess the other piece would be um, not overcomplicating things for yourself. So picking one system to address and formulating around that. So similar again with Western herbs, if you want to support the liver, you pick liver supporting herbs. Same with drainage. If you feel like supporting the liver is where you want to start, then you pick the numbers that support the liver. Mm. So sometimes we want to do like all these things at once, like address all these different pathologies and systems, but that can be a little bit confusing to the body, I think. So distilling things down, having like maybe one aspect that you're addressing and seeing what transpires. Yeah, that's the fascinating thing about um, medicines or curative substances in general is that there might be like three different systems of looking at it. There might be the Chinese medicine perspective, there might be the biochemical, there might be the folk energetic perspective. And to some degree, they're all right. And they're all kind of overlapping. But at the end of the day, it's literally like, what does that uh, substance actually do to that person's body, mind, and spirit? And, um, and, and I guess also the intention of like, why do you want to do that? Right. So. Yeah. And I think, again, that's the blend of the art and the science. So you use a lot of your like biochemical thinking, your diagnosis to say, my hypothesis is that this is the system that needs support because of these reasons. And then you choose your tool to support that system. So whether that tool be, you know, homeopathic pellets, drainage, low dose herbs, a supplement or a pharmaceutical, um, you're still creating a hypothesis and testing out your idea. So Mm -hmm. I'm working with Dr. Kalmans. I learned that simple is often better. So it is fine to have one idea and pursue that idea and see what happens. If you're pursuing a bunch of different ideas and something happens, you don't know what did what. So really having a clear thought process around this is what I want to address with this person. I'm going to use this tool. Let's see what happens. Mm. Yeah. And honestly, people are very receptive to that idea. If you, I do a lot of education with my patients and I tend to explain a lot of essentially what's going on in my brain. So this is what I'm thinking and this is why I'm recommending what I'm recommending. They have a better understanding. And then you create that team where it's like, you need to, uh, you know, have some, be looking within to see what's shifting internally and then reporting back to me. So I'm very... I'm an open communicator with my patients. So they have an understanding of what philosophy I'm using. Mm. It's interesting too, like how many different ways you can view disease. Like you can view it as, oh, it's just these symptoms that are happening. And, you know, it's this structural thing that's happening that you can see, you know, on the lab test or on the imaging, or you can view it as these are manifestations of some underlying thing, maybe a organ dysfunction of some, uh, uh, certain type. And that's uh, another thing that really inspired me from uh, Dr. Kalanin's um, way of viewing things, which was even for something like depression or anxiety, there can be like an organ rootedness to it. Like, mm-hmm. is it 
depression that's caused by dysfunctional liver or a dysfunctional heart, um, and not even dysfunctional purely in the you know anatomic physiological sense. Like they they'll go get the EKG and yeah, and they're totally fine and they're fine. But like from the holistic perspective of the heart, as you know, the seat of emotions and you know the seat of the mind, soul in some ways, right. which I think is you know, that's one of our most powerful abilities as naturopathic physicians is we're, we should always be asking why, why does this person have anxiety? Mm-hmm. They have anxiety because they had heartbreak, then you really should address the heart and the, that emotional component. Do they have anxiety because their nervous system is just completely imbalanced because they're, you know, under a ton of stress and all these things. So it's, yeah, it's all about the why. And then looking at where is that reflected internally. Honestly, the it's more functional dysfunction, if that makes sense, as opposed to pathological dysfunction. Mm-hmm. So that's, I mean, the amount of tools we possess as naturopathic physicians or, you know, Chinese medicine practitioners or things like that, we really can take this different approach to patients and look, where is the real root of the imbalance? And that's what you address. Mm-hmm. So sometimes you use a band-aid right in the interim, but you should always be trying to get to that, the deepest part of the mm. imbalance. That's amazing about searching for that route because it usually brings you into very mysterious waters mm-hmm. because it goes beyond the research. It goes deeper than what is known. And then you start going into the world of observation and, and speculation about, well, yes, you know, this disease process has this and that going on, but why does it have that? In a, in a yeah, where sense? did that originate from? Mm-hmm. You know, that's with homeopathy, you can get to some real deep places with people because, you know, oftentimes it is like early trauma or early events in a person's life that are now manifesting on the physical plane. So it's you, I feel like homeopathy, you really get to understand people who they are as a person, but also like, how did they get from being that infant to where they are today? And you're treating along the way. So you're, it's that onion approach, right? You're kind of peeling back all of these layers that people have acquired throughout their life to get to who is that person, like the seed of that person. Mm. So during these times, I'm sure many people are feeling really stressed out. What is your self-care practice look like? Like, what are some go-to things you like that you'd want to share with people, especially during such times of uncertainty? Uh, total confession. I actually have horrible self-care because <laughs> I'm like a wife and a mom and I have, you know, two kids and three different practices. So I'm probably um, not a great patient, honestly, but I do think that eating, I always eat healthy. So you have to eat, Right. So I, that's kind of my self-care outlet because you have to eat, so you have to cook. Um, So I love cooking. Again, that's like a creative outlet for me. So I don't make anything complex, but I eat very nourishing foods. Um, So that's probably number one is eating the best that you can. So if you eat crap, you feel like crap. Um, The other thing is sleep. So it's all the foundational things, right, to health. You should be sleeping well. A lot of people are having horrible sleep because of all the cortisol Mm -hmm. that we're all experiencing. So prioritizing sleep, trying to um, have a routine, 
trying to not binge watch Netflix till too late at night. Um, (laughs) But yeah, I would say, so eating, sleeping and getting outside. So I don't do any kind of rigorous exercise, but I have gone on a lot of walks with my kids, Um, just getting in the sun, getting your body moving, um, just trying to get outside because we're all, you know, cooped up inside, Mm -hmm. but you actually don't have to be inside. You can be outside. So those are probably my three biggest things right now. Try to eat well, try to sleep well and get outside and move your body. So it's all that we should never forget the foundations to health. Um, and those are probably the three biggest pieces. Mm. The getting outside part has been like revolutionary for me. Some days yep. when it's just like the overwhelm sets in and you're just not in the right state to, you know, continue with the grind. Um, just like a nice, really long walk in some very green spot, uh, preferably not too much foot traffic. Um, and then not do anything other than just like breathe and just like look at things. And every time like a thought comes in your mind, just like focus back on and kind of, cause I think a lot of this stress comes from that constant thinking and thinking and thinking mm-hmm. and thinking. And uh, it's good that our nervous system does that for us. Cause that's how we survive this long. Right. But when you're in this state where there's invisible threats all around you, you know, like financial and like virus, et cetera, uh, our nervous system is like not made to be able to handle that much uncertainty and, and threat and you can't even see it and you can't even attack it. You can't run from it really. So. And it's changing every day. I mean, I think that's very hard is like, this is new territory for everyone. So it's like every day we're learning new things and we have to be constantly adapting to, yeah, this invisible threat. Um, So I think I agree getting out in nature and trying to like not listen to a podcast while you're doing it Mm -hmm. or, um, but really just getting outside, Mm -hmm. breathing fresh air kind of, that's been my reset um, is just prioritizing getting outside and then again, eating well, sleeping well. Yeah, definitely. And uh, there's this uh, saying that, you know, you should meditate an hour a day, but if you're really busy, you should meditate two hours every day. <laughs> and I think that applies, that applies here where it's like, oh, you don't have any time to do anything. Like you need to make like extra time to take care of yourself. Cause you're not going to make it otherwise. Yeah. Um, I mean, I feel like we, this has been interesting because we have experienced the same societal pressures, but we're expected to do everything in a completely different way. Yeah. So again, I have kids. It's like, oh, now you're supposed to work from home, which you weren't doing, transition all of your work and workflows to an at-home office that you didn't actually have, plus be a teacher because your kids were in school and maintain all the other aspects of your life. Yeah. Like almost life, we were expected to continue life as we knew it in a reality that we had never experienced before. That's such a that's such a good point. I think that's the big kicker and why it's so difficult is for many people, it's all of the stresses of life that existed before are still there, all of the the work that one needed to do and keep on top of, except all of the the rich like habits and patterns and social connections that we had that made that much easier we're just suddenly taken away. And now it's like, all right, you just got to motivate yourself a hundred percent of the time. Always right. at home, <laughs> at home. You have all the other things. Going. Yeah. Yeah. 
it's, uh, it's like some kind of crazy training that we're all going through. I kind of well, hope that we can hold on to it after, you know, there's some normalcy, but that we still retain some element of that. I hope that people come away um, recognizing the value of human connection, because mm-hmm. actually as a physician, it's been very hard to um, practice telemedicine. You know, it's like, oh, now we just do everything via telehealth. And as a provider, like we need the human interaction. So it's like, yes, I can practice medicine, but not the style of medicine that I want to practice. Mm -hmm. So, and I think, you know, that goes both ways for the patients as well. I think there is some convenience, quote unquote, with telehealth, but we, I think this should highlight the value of human connection. Mm -hmm. And maybe we don't need the, um, unfulfilling human connection, right? Like the passive, oh, you're at the store and um, like the consumerist style connection, Mm -hmm. but real connection with people that provide you something. So I hope that's a takeaway. I'm not super convinced that um, that's a lesson people are learning, but. That's been a big one for me. That's been probably actually like top three big realizations of like, you actually need meaningful social contact with people or else you just can't function. It's almost like, you know, you were like a machine in some sense, like a car and like, you just like, don't have, you know, this drivetrain anymore, but you got to still do all your work and you still got to go about everything as normal without all the, um, the basic fundamental needs of being a human, which are social contact uh, of a meaningful uh, sense. And it's questionable whether telehealth can provide that. Yeah. And I feel like even the, the virtual environment, you know, it's like people said, Oh, have a zoom happy hour. And it's like, it doesn't replace a real happy (laughs) hour. Like I actually want to see my friends in real life. That, that just, that just makes me want to drink alone. The the mention of a zoom happy hour. It sounds like work related. (laughs) Yeah. It's just, there is not like, it's not apples to apples you know? So it's the same with medicine. It's like a telehealth appointment is not the same as an in-person appointment. Yeah. A Zoom happy hour with my friends is not quite the same as a real happy hour with my friends. It's amazing that those exist uh, for us to, because if there wasn't that, I don't even know what would be going on. If there wasn't even the electronic connection we have with each other, then it would be, you know, super, super difficult. But Um, it's better to have a choice, you know, like telehealth is really cool when it's like a convenient option, but not when it's the only thing that is available. Um, especially when you want to, you know, do physical exams and actually look at the person. And then there's all the, the subtle things that maybe you can only pick up from being in the room with that person that you can't even pick up just from their voice or just from looking at them. Yeah. I mean, I think if you, like you, when you walk into a room, you have an energetic experience, mm-hmm. right? Like you sense who that person is or kind of what that dynamic is. Um, you know, you can walk in a room and you can tell that someone's going to be really cheerful and kind of outgoing, or you can walk in a room and that person is very closed. You can feel that without communicating verbally, but you cannot feel that over the internet. Right. So yeah, it's especially and going back to homeopathy, you kind of need that human human interaction to pick up on those subtleties to f- sense who is this person as a person. Um, and that is just not transcribed over the virtual world. Mm. 
Yeah, it's uh, it's it's pretty sad what's happening now. I saw some um, some statistics, pretty startling actually, that in the in the period of um, the quarantine so far, I believe this was in some maybe some county in uh, California that just in that period, the one to two months, there's been as much uh, as many suicides as there was in the whole year pro- uh, pr- uh, previous. So people's, especially people who already were not in like a good um, mental state and they were just barely hanging on, like that's the, you know, the very large straw that, that breaks many camels backs. Yeah. I mean, social isolation is hard, even if you are of sound mind. Yep. So yeah, if that's already kind of that plane of weakness for you, it's understandable that this would be um, too much to handle, especially if you lost your job and, you know, it's like, there are also all these other factors that are disruptive to your life. So I think the real aspect of that situation highlights the highlights the need it's the need for the need for need more mental health resources because mental health is a real problem and there is not enough support for people that struggle in that area Mm, that's so true yeah and it's it's the it's the aspect of health that one suffers the most from yeah because again it's mm -hmm. invisible for Mm -hmm. the most part so it's something that you know, a lot of people suffer internally and there's no, you know, you look fine, quote unquote, but internally you are not fine. So, you know, it's, there's not enough resources. There's still stigma with mental health. People don't feel comfortable reaching out for support. Um, and it's not a surface disease. So back to homeopathy, you know, it's all the tools that you need to use to support people. Maybe they're on antidepressants, but that's not benefiting them. They're in counseling, but that's been disrupted right from the current situation. So it's about, I mean, medicine is an integrative approach and that's where it will be moving in the future. So to, uh, to end this off, I, I want to ask you about the kind of, uh, controversies I've heard recently about, uh, laws around homeopathy. I've been hearing all these things like certain countries are making them prescriptions or some of them are making them illegal. What, what's your view of that? Cause I just heard that kind of in passing, you know, on Facebook. So I don't really know anything. Yeah. I mean, I think it's interesting. Like if you talk about the FDA, hopefully I don't get in trouble for this, but um, <laughs> the FDA is one of the main listeners of this podcast, by the way, <laughs> shouts out to the FDA. <laughs> um, you can't say that something is like complete bullshit, but that it's also dangerous and going to kill someone. So I feel like you kind of have to pick a lane. It's either like total magic, woo woo, there's nothing in it, or it's actually powerful medicine that works. So it's strange to me to have both like opposite opinions about something coming from one organization. Um, So I don't know, you know, and then you, you can go whole conspiracy theory, like, are they wanting to regulate it because it does actually work? Um, I don't know. I think if you look at European countries where homeopathy is much more uh, utilized and accepted, it is offered really as a prescription because it is seen as a medicine. So it's not seen as this like over-the-counter thing that may or may not do anything. It's actually viewed as powerful medicine that works. So that's how they regulate it is as a medicine. 
Um, I think the FDA, that's definitely not the understanding from the FDA. So the here, I, you know, there's a lot of topics in our country that are very like black and white. And I feel mm-hmm. like homeopathy is one of them. It's either total hogwash, does nothing, doesn't work, um, or it's, it works. So yeah, I don't know what will happen with regulation. Um, but I don't think you can think something is nothing and also kill someone at the same time. Yeah, that, that's, the, that's the amazing thing. So I was reading through the homeopathy article on Wikipedia and like, oh. it starts out strong. It's just like in the first sentence, I think in the first like five words, it says the word pseudoscience. Like it couldn't even like wait till the end of the sentence. Right. <laughs> uh, yeah. And then later in the article too, it, it uh, has what you mentioned where in the same paragraph, it'll say, you know, like, there's inert, it's inert. It does nothing. It has no uh, active principle. And then like very quickly pivots to like, oh, and it could be also really dangerous because like sometimes it actually has something in it. <laughs> it's like right. what is, That can kill you. Yes. It's like, I don't know. It's hard to believe in that kind of, um, it, it's like polemic thinking, like, you know, like it's dangerous and, you know, at least at least if there was more honesty around it, like at least if the main line taken was like, it's, oh, it's a nerd. It does nothing, but it's harmless. So everyone can use it. I'd be like, okay, well they're coming from somewhere, but um, it's like, no, it's, it doesn't work. And also it's dangerous. Right. I mean, the other argument that you hear is that there's no research, but if you go on PubMed, there's a lot of research. So, you know, it's like there is research in humans using arnica for rhinoplasty so you get a nose job you take arnica you have less bruising actual research there's also a ton of research in animals which i know by like conventional standards is not great research but if you think that homeopathy is complete bunk and only works via placebo animal studies are the best example because they don't know what placebo is so that actually like supports the idea that it doesn't work by placebo in my mind yeah. Um, but yeah, that's a super common argument. There's no research. And I'm like, obviously you have not looked because there actually is a ton of research. That's the interesting thing when like uh, science itself becomes like a kind of dogma where it's like just a repeated saying. So someone will have heard from their colleague, oh, homeopathy has no research behind it. And they just kind of parrot that. Uh, but how many people before they say something like that, they actually just take literally three seconds and look it up. Right. Google. And that's the case with like herbs at, at this point, yeah. especially where sometimes I hear people still say that herbs don't have any effect, And that's kind of hard to believe because there's really a lot of proven research of it having effect. Maybe not the one that everyone claims it has, but they do things. It's obvious. Right. Yeah. I mean, I feel like with herbs, especially we would not continue to use something for thousands of years if it did nothing. So to me, like there is that, um, like traditional or folk Mm. knowledge around herbs that sure the double blind placebo controlled trial doesn't show whatever, but in use, we have seen it for generations. So I'm a balanced person where it's like, time and a place for the, you know, rigorous studies, but we should not completely discredit the generational knowledge that we have learned about things. 
um, it's a balance. It's like, we do need more research to validate what we're doing, but we shouldn't discredit something just because there is no research. Mm. Yeah. And another issue too, with some of the research is it makes a lot of assumptions about how reality is before it even goes to test the substance. So like, um, classic example is the way that research will use, you know, one herb for people with this or that condition, let's say, you know, diabetes or something, but understanding medicine and healing, every of those people have a different cause probably to some degree of what actually really caused their diabetes, what hereditary factors, lifestyle, mentality, what they eat, et cetera. And like what we call diabetes is not a real thing. It's like an abstraction. It's a concept. And that concept of uh, disharmony is measured by lab tests. And then that system goes together. So when you do a test uh, that's testing these herbs and it doesn't change within that paradigm of viewing that as that illness, that doesn't necessarily disprove that the traditional folk uses, which actually weren't even, didn't even have an idea of diabetes existing, uh, but we're giving it for like this or that symptom or this or that presentation of the body. So it's like, if you approach it from a certain uh, standpoint, if it, if that's not how it's been used, if that's not how it was even originally intended to be used, then of course you're going to get negative results. Yeah. And I think that's a problem with homeopathy as well is it's so individualized that to have a study where it's like, you're treating all these people that have been distilled down to this, like one type of patient population with one single remedy you might not get good results because you might not use that remedy for every single person. So it's, I mean, that's the trouble with research in general is that you're kind of creating this artificial patient population to test something. You're eliminating as many variables as possible. But with a lot of traditional medicines, you actually need all of the variables to decide what treatment you would give because we're treating the individual. So I need to know all these different aspects of who you are as a person to choose the best medicine for you. You can't distill people down and apply our modalities in the same way. Mm, it's such a good point. Um, the research is really focused around kind of focused on the science aspect of it, but not the art aspect of it, which actually is not separatable from uh, healing work. Because uh, being a physician or being a doctor is not really being a scientist. It's, a, it's an applied science. You right. use what you understand, but at the end of the day, you have to try and experiment and see what works. And even, you know, this substance might not be shown to work, but maybe if another practitioner uses it and they use it along with this and maybe in a different dose and maybe they, you know, pitched it differently to the patient, maybe then it'll work. So uh, it's... It, trying to remove like, you know, one side of the whole coin and still have a coin. Right. Yeah. We, any of the integrative professions or um, non-conventional professions, we're always looking at the whole person, right? The whole, who you are, mental, emotional, physical, all of your complaints and trying to put, solve that puzzle. Conventionally, I mean, not to discredit conventional medicine, but they really distill a person down to symptoms and then send them to specialists. So it's, they're not integrating all the information where 
that's kind of where we shine is we look at this whole person, try to figure out with everything that you're telling me, what is the root cause? And then what tools can I use to support you? Mm -hmm. So time and a place for both styles, but we can't really translate what we do into a conventional research model or things like that. Mm -hmm. That's my favorite thing with, uh, with patients. When you ask them a question that they have never heard before, they don't expect because you're actually asking for something deeper. Like maybe they have this or that complaint and you start asking them about their mood and they wonder like, why are you asking about that? But then later it becomes clear. This is like an underlying reason for this. So I think that's always beautiful. Yeah. I mean, I just had a patient, this is like a classic patient. She uh, initially saw me because she's not sleeping well. She just has a lot of like ruminating thoughts prior to bed. She can't really calm her mind, but she also has anxiety during the day. And then she also has a ton of digestive issues. And to me, I'm like, well, that's pretty easy to connect. We need to balance your nervous system, right? Calm your mind. You'll sleep better. You won't have anxiety throughout the day. You'll have better digestion. And her mind was blown. She was like, no one's ever connected all of these things. Everyone has just treated, you know, somebody gave me Benadryl to sleep. Somebody put me on an antidepressant for the anxiety. And then somebody put me on, you know, whatever, Imodium for the digestion. Mm. It's like, well, they're all the, you know, it's just the same thing manifesting on different planes. And that's the danger of forgetting the art aspect of it, because that's very like, oh, well, the research study shows that if you have this symptom, this works for it. And it's like, yeah, it's true. It does work for that. But is the person any more healthy because, you know, right. they have less stomach acid now? <laughs> right. Well, and then if you look at our modalities, you can use, you know, I, I used herbs. And there are herbs that will address all three of those things. Mm -hmm. So I'm always trying to um, find, like distill down to that root. And then you really can provide one treatment or, you know, one hypothesis and use whatever tool. So homeopathy or herbs or a supplement to support the root of that person. Mm. Well, it's been, uh, it's been a lovely conversation. Um, yeah, thank you Dr. Me. Meredith Trump, where can uh, our listeners uh, find you and your clinic, your work? Oh, goodness. I wear a lot of hats. Um, so I am adjunct clinic and academic faculty at NUNM, both in the naturopathic program and then also the mental health program. Um, I am at a small private practice up in Vancouver, Washington called Serona Integrative Health. And then I also work at a DBT clinic as a prescriber. So a lot of different places you can find. Excellent. Me. You must be, uh, you must be super busy right now and all from home. Super that sounds busy. rough. <laughs> Juggling a lot of balls always. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, thank you for having me. It's been great. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. <laughs>